Yeah. And I think the generic term of startup, we could probably blame it for having founders waste a hell of a lot of time talking to potential investors where if they rocked up at the beginning of the meeting and said, cool, this is my definition of startup. And they're like, Ooh, that's my definition of startup. And they're not really aligned. They could have just shook hands and walked away instead these poor founders trying to, you know, start these businesses, which could be amazing businesses, could be amazing big businesses. Their growth model is not compatible with the business model of the VCs and it's never going to work. But the amount of time wasted based on exactly the disconnect between the definition of a startup, I think is, is just crazy. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by our friends at N14. We spend a lot of time talking about the importance of building out incredible teams of missionaries at your startup. And N14 are a specialist recruiting partner, finding teams of missionary engineers who are excited to work with you and your startup. At N14, they take pride in being open and transparent with candidates and with clients, and they act as an extension and representation of your brand into their network of incredible engineers. Check them out at n14.io. You're listening to the Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. I've been building products and startups for over 20 years, including 10 years in venture-backed companies in Silicon Valley. I'm now helping a small handful of startups avoid landmines and dead ends to fast forward to the best high growth outcomes as quickly as possible. And I'm Yanib, a software engineer, operator, coach, advisor, investor, and people geek. I have worked at Google and a number of scale-ups and am now co-founder at Circular, a high growth startup. Our job on this show is to guide you through the unique mindset and approach that drives Silicon Valley style disruption at scale. And in this episode, we're going to discuss alternative ways of raising funds for your startup. In previous episodes, we've dived quite deep into what I guess you could call the traditional route of fundraising, which is equity venture capital, where you sell shares in your startup in return for capital. But today we have a very special guest, Matt Allen, founder of Tractor Ventures, to talk about a few other ways of raising capital as well and what the pros and cons are and how to really think about funding your startup business. Matt, it would be great if you could introduce yourself briefly and then we'll jump in. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Yano. Thanks for having me, Chris. So yeah, my name is Matt Allen. I've been in technology since the beginning of my career, which started in the mid nineties because I'm old. For the first half of my career as a software developer, I was a CTO and I was a co-founder in charge of building actual product. Uh, about halfway through, flipped up into my post-technical career and I uh, became a technical recruiter build out the software engineering teams for scale-ups, realestate.com.au and Redbubble. Then I spent some time in the startup and venture capital team at Amazon Web Services. And in the end of 2019, I left to start Tractor Ventures. And in parallel with that, for about the last 10 years, I've been angel investing in tech companies along the way as well. And I have about 50 or so of those with my wife, April. Fantastic. So well, thanks for coming on board, Matt. Let's talk about Tractor Ventures in particular, but also non-dilutive sources of funding in general. Maybe you can explain a little bit about how revenue-based funding works. Sure. Venture capital is actually quite an old mechanism, an old funding mechanism. We know that it came back from way back in the days when people used to build boats and go off to find treasure and they would share those, those returns with the people that was able to help them fund those vehicles to get going and then come back and share the rewards. The real thing you want to think about here um, as a founder is what's the risk involved in building these companies now? 
And I think even in the careers that all three of us have had, have seen the risk of starting a technology company from a, certainly from a capital outlay perspective or from a, a CapEx perspective, as opposed to an OpEx perspective, changed dramatically. I remember my first startup in 1999, the hardware cost me 25 grand and the hosting cost me five grand a month. And that was for three machines that didn't scale. So, you know, the risk of actually starting these companies is changing over time. Now with cloud and no code tools and a whole bunch of stuff, the actual risk of starting a company has changed. But in technology, it feels like uh, the only way to get going has been to sell shares in your company to other people. Use that capital you've now got in your bank account to do all the jobs inside your business. And that over time, you keep selling shares until you get to a point where the people who are now shareholders can see some returns on those shares. I think that the challenge that founders have now is that there's a certain point in time where the risk of scaling this business actually changes. And I think we should probably dive into this. And I know it's Chris's um, favorite subject of what is a startup. And I do genuinely believe that there are, there are a lot of startups that, that do need a massive amount of capital and the risk actually doesn't reduce over time. It, it stays static or even gets bigger depending how big these companies get. But in reality, I, I think most founders aren't actually building venture scale startups at the beginning necessarily. So. From my perspective, the problem I was trying to solve when I started Tractor Ventures was that not all founders need venture capital or want venture capital. And then if they have taken venture capital and reduced the risk, how do they get some capital into the business that doesn't affect the cap table, that it continues to allow them to grow without having to sell more shares? So that's inherently the, the problem I was starting to solve when I started Tractor. And just a little bit on the name, I hate the word unicorn. I know you guys talk about it all the time. I think it makes it sound like a child. So I reckon that tractors versus rockets is a better analogy. Rockets are exciting and they're always on big missions, but they're hard to land and prone to blowing up and they're very expensive. So tractors are more consistent, reliable. And if you tell a farmer, you're going to take the tractor off him, he'll probably get quite upset. So Tractor Ventures is here to help with capital that allows growth without necessarily having to hand over a bunch of shares. Try telling Elon you're going to take his rocket ship off his hands and see what sort of reaction you get. <laughs> Good point. So surely, Matt, you're saying that we sound like children when you're talking about unicorns, right? Not you specifically, but you know, if, <laughs> if, if, if the people building real businesses were looking over the fence at the startup people and they're all talking about unicorns, I, I do wonder whether or not sometimes we might be struggled to take seriously referring to things that don't actually exist. <laughs> nice. Okay. Sounds good. The funny thing is these billion dollar companies that were once considered unicorns are actually now very common and we need to come up with new terminology. But the, the other thing actually I wanted to pick up on, you and I have a fun um, debate going on about startups on Twitter and on chat and in person. And we talk about rocket ships versus tractors. I love that metaphor very much. The only thing I think that is ultimately actually daylight between us is naming things. Because for me, when I talk about startups, I'm implicitly talking about high growth, venture backable, Silicon Valley style startups. That's all implied and packed into the word startup for me, as opposed to small business or even a software business and so on. So I just feel like we need a better term for it, lest we have to go around defining the word startup or which type of startup we're talking about every time we have a conversation. Yeah, and I think the generic term of startup, we could probably blame it for having founders waste a hell of a lot of time talking to potential investors where if they rocked up at the beginning of the meeting and said, cool, this is my definition of startup. And they're like, Ooh, that's my definition of startup. And they're not really aligned. They could have just shook hands and walked away. 
instead of these poor founders trying to, you know, start these businesses, which could be amazing businesses, could be amazing big businesses. Their growth model is not compatible with the business model of the VCs and it's never going to work. But the amount of time wasted based on exactly the disconnect between the definition of a startup, I think is, is just crazy. Agreed, which is why I feel like we almost need another term so that we're not having to negotiate that definition each time. That's the purpose of words, right? The purpose of symbols is to have a shorthand to mitigate the need to negotiate the definition of something. And I, I just feel like this conflation and broadening of the term startup, even of the term founder versus a kind of a small business creator or something, it just starts to force us back into this negotiation step of what are we actually talking about here? What would be really good is to actually take a step back and talk about the different types of risk profile and how they match different types of funding. We talked about rocket ships and tractors and you noted matt that venture capital or equity capital is old and in fact it didn't start with rocket ships it just started with ships and really there are only two types of funding in the world there's nothing new under the sun right you've got equity funding and you've got debt funding and of course there are different ways of packaging it up but either you sell a part of your company or a company sells a part of itself in order to get capital or the company borrows money in other words it takes money but it has to pay it back and I think we're seeing some really good innovations in debt-based financing, which is one of the things that Tractor does. But maybe if we could talk about the different types of companies and how they should be thinking about what is the right source of funding for them. Let's start with the traditional financial institutions may not be comfortable lending to a modern tech company. Every other business out there in the world that isn't a tech company usually has tangible assets that a bank can touch and feel and is happy to lend against because if it doesn't work out well, they can sell it. Even think about a mortgage or a coffee machine or a fit out of a, I don't know, a hairdresser or something like that. The bank can say, cool, we understand how your business works. We understand the inputs. We understand the output and we can lend against it, secure it against that asset. Most financing out there is an asset backed loan, whether it be a car or, or something like that, where the, the financier can come back and say, cool, your company didn't work out, but we've still got this thing. We're going to go sell it now and everything will be okay. Traditional lenders, banks, um, don't really understand what the asset is inside a tech company. So there's kind of traditionally been one, and this is the VC loves the tech based asset as in the IP, the technology, the knowledge inside this, this business that is, is valuable, which is why VCs love it when you have all the tech built in house and they don't like it when you outsource it, because is that really, is that a leaking of, of value and leaking of IP? So the way we look at the world is that we believe that recurring revenue is actually an asset. It's a non-tangible asset. You can't touch it, but you can certainly do the work to understand the quality of it. And that's where we do a bunch of our work. This is called revenue based financing, where we take a position on your forward revenue. We lend against it. And we take a small top line percentage revenue share as a payment every month. So variable payments based on how much money you made last month. Generally the, the financing will come back to us over a couple of years via a small top line revenue share. So we are actually taking a position on the growth of this company. There's a few things we don't do. We, we can't lend to businesses that aren't growing and don't want to continue to grow. So there is a definite commonality there between equity and, and, and our lending. And we don't take VC risks. So, you know, we're not rocking up with a loan where the founder has two months worth of money left in the bank account and no way to extend that out. And we don't lend as the very last lender. We don't do that. And we're not rescuing anybody from running off a cliff, but that's the way we see the world, which is that non-tangible asset recurring revenue as an asset, 
and we're happy to take a position on it. I, I like to put an intellectual framework around these things. And, and to me, a lot of it, it's, it's implied in what you said, Matt, it comes down to risk. And Chris, you and I have spoken in previous episodes about what makes that sort of beautiful peanut butter and jam combination of venture capital and tech companies, at least traditionally, is that you have this high upfront cost and a high risk of failure, but then very low marginal costs and very few impediments to rapid scaling. And so the whole point is a venture capital model is a good way of sharing in that risk and then sharing in that massive upside. Now, I think Matt, what you're saying is that not all tech companies or tech startups fall into that category of extremely risky with extremely large upside, but some of them are, especially with the proliferation of tools around from AWS through to the various SaaS providers and no code tools, you can build a cash flow positive business with a relatively small amount of upfront capital. And maybe the potential to scale is not as enormous, but also the risk of it going to nothing is not as enormous. And so in a scenario like that, rather than having a partner who needs to fully participate in the risk of the business, you can have a partner who is more conservative, which debt is by definition really, and borrow the money against the future revenues of that business. Yeah, that's definitely uh, one way to look at it and definitely one use case for revenue-based financing. Maybe another lens to look at it is there's a point in most companies where the revenue and the risk kind of cross over, especially if one's spewing off a lot of cash and you can use that, you can pull some of that forward to, to drive the growth if you're confident it's going to keep going. And that's really exciting for all current shareholders. I think the challenge is that if your business is in that state, as in you are really fast growing then the likelihood of a disorderly queue of people wanting to buy your shares off you at a crazy price is probably going to be long. And it's hard to say, actually, no, I'm just going to use this thing I've got over here, which is my already existing revenue to drive this growth without selling more shares. So there's a point where I believe most companies should actually stop selling shares willy nilly. And the reason being is there's parts of your business at most scales, and we won't say maybe really early on, but eventually that you put a dollar in the machine and N dollars drop out the bottom. And if you can do that often, and you've got the confidence that that works, then selling shares to someone to do that is handing over all the future value for those shares to those people. That capital is, is quite expensive. Thinking about any kind of debt is very easy for us. Say we sold you a dollar for a dollar 30 that you gave us back over the next couple of years. If you could recycle that capital through your machine a few times in those two years, then you've driven the inherent value of the business up because the revenue has gone up and you've retained all of that for all the current shareholders. So I think there's almost a jobs to be done view on capital here, which is if there's jobs to be done in your business where you can actually create leverage of borrowed capital, then you should really consider that. And I actually think that um, now in modern days, any business that runs entirely off equity capital probably should think a bit hard. And I also don't think everything should be run off debt. I think we have the opportunity for the first time, especially here in Australia, where it's relatively new for founders to use a blend of capital as they scale their businesses, knowing that the risk is not always at hundred percent and it's not very often at zero percent either. It's somewhere in between. And that blended cost of capital is really important to understand. 
I think the thing that a lot of founders forget is that when Chris or myself or any of us invest in a really early stage, it's likely that we're going to get something greater than a hundred percent year on year compounding growth returns on our money. It's not free money. I'm very curious, actually. One of the things that Nick Crocker from Blackbird talked about was the advantage of VC. One of the advantages of VC was that it was no recourse capital, meaning that if the company went to zero, everything failed, the VC has either no means or no interest in coming after you for the money. How does venture debt or debt-based financing work in the event of a possible failure of the business? Our capital in particular is not um, secured by any, any personal guarantees. So there's no one coming after you if it all goes to zero. If the company went into administration, we'd be at the top of the capital stack. So we know how capital stacks work for equity, but the last money in is generally the first money out and the founders are at the bottom of it. We actually sit above the shareholders. So if there was anything left, we'd probably get our, our money back first, but it's not, it's not an actual recourse position either. So I think that's an interesting and important point you make, Chris, which is what risk for the founder changes when you take different types of capital. That is an upside of EC is that if it all goes to custard, they're there going, yep, that didn't work. I think the other side of that coin is that growth on the other side of it is what they're looking for. And if that growth doesn't come, they go okay for it or go to, to custard. And as a founder, I think evaluating what the current risk of it all going to zero is actually really important to do over time because it should in fact change. It shouldn't always be that at any point in time, this thing can go to zero. And I was, you know, listening to your um, episode from last week about everybody telling their founders to get to cash flow neutral and to provide optionality, which is my favorite word. Like, how do you think a founder should balance that, that option and that risk? We hear all the, the VCs saying, be prepared for a desert and you can't get any more capital, therefore be in control. Like these are the words that I talk about to my founders from day one. And when you get the opportunity to scale and go faster, it's because you've unlocked something and it's not because you're about to run out of money that you need to raise more capital. It just feels to me like at every point in the journey, there's this being in that state of being able to go, look, the thing's working. We want to make it go better rather than we're about to run out of money. Please buy some more shares is a really interesting mental space for, for founders to be in. It's funny. Optionality is one of my least favorite words <laughs> because I, I, I think there's a whole generation of people who are not willing to fully commit to anything in the spirit of maintaining optionality. And I think at a startup, an unwillingness to commit can actually be deadly. But yeah, I think it's interesting. And I'm learning as we talk here, Matt, which was my hope. This is just a way of getting free learning for me, really. It's the only the case that what you're saying is, first of all, that it's not either or. You're not choosing either to take on equity funding or debt funding, but rather a mix of the two. And secondly, risk is not necessarily the right or only lens here, because if you raise equity and then you take debt on top of that, you're actually leveraging up. So in a sense, you could be taking on more risk, but it's a different kind of risk, right? Which is like you said, you, with equity, you as a founder are saying, I am going to part with a, a piece of my company so that I bring on effectively partners, co-owners who are willing to take this asymmetric upside downside bet. Whereas with debt, you're saying, we're going to borrow money and the risk we're taking as a company is that by the time we need to pay that money back, the money has been put to good enough work that we're in a stronger position than we, if we'd never borrowed it in the first place. And so I'm interested to think about if I'm a founder and, and trying to make these decisions, how to model out 
where will I be in two years, five years, if I take equity funding versus debt funding? And how in particular does it dovetail with the notion of hypergrowth? I think the lens you want to look through is the efficiency of the capital inside your business. I've heard you guys talk about growth machines and growth engines and, and ways to turn capital into more capital in these hyperscaling companies. The best founders we all know are on top of their metrics. They know what CAC, LTV, ROI, churn looks like. There is a mathematical equation at some point in time, if they get it right, where you can put some money in and some money falls out the bottom. And the ROI and that should be pretty short, depending on who the business is, but it should be relatively known. And we know that it changes over time, but it's, there's a point in time where you're like, I can put a dollar in here and three fall at the bottom. And if I put those three in the top, nine will fall at the bottom and we just keep going. So the risk there is that can the company afford to take the, the payments out of our revenue to pay this back? But the current shareholders are the ones who are going to benefit from the upside versus if we sell equity, then the, the risk here is that we've handed over the future value forever to those new shareholders or their portion of the company forever to those new shareholders. And we're going to drive the same sort of results. You got to remember that a dollar is a dollar, right? The dollar in is got a dollar out attached to it. It's all about business models. My business model is I'll sell you a dollar for whatever, a dollar 30, you can pay me back over a couple of years. The VC sell you a dollar, they expect 10 back over the next 10 years. The founder has to decide whether they're going to hand it out. So to model it, it's quite simple, especially mine, is that you put in a row in your spreadsheet that says, here's the agreed top line MRR share percentage we're going to do. That's going to come out before it rattles through to the next month. My dollar will get paid back in a dollar 30 over a couple of years. It's midterm capital. So I think it's important to think about time here. Like you said, we believe that blending the capital types together is probably the best outcome for founders to manage that capital stack. And long-term capital is definitely that equity. The last thing you want to be doing is paying a bunch of interest on money on a team of software developers that are building a new product that won't come online for 12 months. That feels like a bad idea. The risk that it happens on time, the risk that it generates, the revenue you want, there's a lot of future-based risk in that stuff. We call our capital midterm capital. It's kind of that sort of two years, two to three years sort of capital where we've got a machine that's working. We can really drive it pretty hard with some capital that I know I've got to pay more back, but the accretive upside of our revenue is going to be you know, meaningful for our business. And then that short-term capital is things like the merchant cash advances, the things you get from a Stripe or a PayPal or a Shopify where, you know, you turn those things around every three months. The effective cost of that is similar to ours, but it's just got this short throw, which means the quantum isn't huge. The payback period's quite short and you've got to do it over and over again. So yeah, I think from a founder's perspective is if I'm confident I can drive revenue by dumping dollars in this thing, who should be the beneficiary of that upside now? And where does the risk lay? If it's still super risky, bring on capital partners you're going to share it with. If the risk is back in the middle of the dial, then maybe you should be able to drive it with some capital shaped like ours. A reminder that today's episode is brought to you by N14. One of the things that we love about N14 is that they fit into your hiring process rather than the other way around. So if you want to do something like make the final offer to the candidate yourself, they're only too happy for you to do that. Check them out at n14.io. One of the things that's difficult about being a founder is you're not an expert in everything. Now, I have the good fortune of having a co-founder who's very good with spreadsheets and finance and whatnot, but I'm not, and I know a lot of other founders are not. So fully modeling this out is difficult. And one of the questions I have is, okay, if I could borrow money to turbocharge growth, could I not at any given point in time 
if I had access to that same amount of money through equity, drive that same amount of growth, but then the business, say 12 months in the future, when that debt comes due, if it had raised equity funding, it will be in a stronger position because it's not carrying debt on the balance sheet. And so if I'm trying to build a high growth business, is there a sense that basically I need to choose between prioritizing growth or control based on the debt versus equity choice here? Really good question. So I think one thing to note is that when we talk about venture capital, especially in the States, is a combination of equity and debt. The debt component's something like 20 to 25%. And the reason being is there are so many cycles ahead of us, right? They're mature. There's all kinds of businesses, our favorite Silicon Valley bank, all the venture debt companies. And the, the interesting thing about that is that the founders are generally um, been through a few cycles as well. And I think the difference between a first time founder who's a product expert who hasn't run a business before and founders who have at least an appreciation that a business is complex and that capital is a really important part to understand is, is becoming a thing now. Sometimes I say that Tractor, what we really are is just a financial education company for founders with tens of million dollars of finance available to them. So we explain to them these things. Now in Australia, up until recently, anyone investing in would have a position that says, we don't like debt and do not pay your debt off with our new capital. We want this to go into the growth of the company, not paying back debts. There's an asterisk there that most founders don't understand. What they're really talking about is founder debt. All the money that the founders put in the business, they may have it sitting as a director's loan and they may be saying, oh, cool. I've got a million dollars coming in, but I spent 300 grand starting this company. Therefore, I'm going to pull 300 grand out. That's not usually going to go down well with your new investors. If you've got debt that you've used to turbocharge growth and that it's coming from a mechanism like ours or, or a different mechanism, maybe that is there because the business is using it to, as you said, great growth and leverage. If an investor gets sad about that, I would be strongly questioning whether they're a good investor. As it's really interesting. And my startup circular has taken a combination of debt and equity funding and definitely understanding the debt is funding a different aspect of the business than the equities. I agree. There's a maturity thing here that there's no such thing as a free lunch and the piper to be paid between equity and debt is different. I, I like your framing of job to be done, Matt. And I think the more sophisticated founders can get and the more education they can get to your point about the different jobs to be done with money in their company and the best way to get that money, the better off they'll be in the long term. Yeah. And I think the thing to rem remind the founders is the company pays for the loan now. So pays for finance now and the shareholders return the upside. When it comes to equity, the founder pays for that as in dilution and the upside is retained by the new shareholders, not in its entirety because they're not hundred percent shareholders, but the point being is. If your company can sustain some payments and grow, then that's going to benefit all the shareholders. Now the VCs, uh, will quite often say, just take our money instead, because you don't have to pay it back and you can use all that money to drive the machine instead of paying back payments. That's also a valid argument to a degree. I think you mentioned it earlier, Yanuf, and that is the upside. If it happens to work really well and the company goes really well, then the long-term upside for the Delta and the shares that were purchased at the time is going to those people. So I, I think the challenge for founders is, especially the founders that are building great companies, the greater the company, the more likely there are going to be a ton of people who are happy to buy shares off you. And it's very hard to say, hang on a minute, maybe I should take 25 or 50% of this round in this non-dilutive capital because you know what, 
I'm okay to balance this stuff up. If you've got the confidence to do that, then I'd think long and hard about it. Um, not everybody does, and it's certainly hard in the early days to, um, to get to that position. It's nearly an interesting version of a principal agent trade-off here, where in a sense, if you look at it from the company lens, right, what is the thing that will maximize the company's ability to succeed and grow to massive scale? It is probably venture. But then if you take the shareholder view, which includes founders, and as you note, Matt, other shareholders too, where your actual ownership share is in question, then it's not necessarily the case that the best outcome will come from taking venture funding. And in many cases, debt funding is a cheaper form of doing that. So it's actually a really interesting trade-off. And to me, it comes back to, if you're a founder, having a think about what your actual aspiration is, is it to have a large share of a pretty big company or a quite small share of a very big company. It's not as simple a trade-off as that, but it might be something where you think about balancing off those two goals and where your own personal, most important, highest and best purpose lies there. And if you express that over time, right, Venture's promise is that we will help you build the biggest of big companies and you'll own the smallest stake of it, but it'll still be worth a fortune. But when you apply that over time, like the risk over time, there's really an interesting one. I know you hate the word optionality, Yanov. If you don't make promises to your shareholders about what a return looks like really early, then you can choose which way it goes. And the, the toughest thing that we've also got to remember about the business models of VCs versus lenders is I don't run portfolio theory, right? I need 95% of my principal to come back to me, plus the interest for my business to work. Where VCs are happy for eight out of 10 of their companies to go to zero. And that's really interesting when you're taking that money because you are signing up for another tour of duty that's got a potential zero outcome along the way. When you take that capital from people, that's it. And I think it's really interesting speaking to founders who have been through the ringer before. A founder that's already been able to de-risk themselves is far more likely to take the venture route and keep going, but also because they know. I think first-time founders quite often struggle because the only thing they think about is raising money from a well-known VC and getting a write-up in TechCrunch or the AFR. And that's the definition of success. So I think balancing these two things up, it's really hard to do, especially Yaniv, as you mentioned, where a lot of founders are not financial people and they don't understand that the weighted average cost of capital is something that will cost them over time. The way I'm thinking about this, if I was to use this in my theoretical startup, is that if I'm doing high risk R&D and inventing stuff and hiring team and running my hypotheses and my experiments, that feels like to me the place for traditional VC. If I've cracked the code on my unit economics and I know I put a dollar in and I get $2 out, that feels like a great application for debt financing. I think the mistake that founders are making when they're not considering debt financing is to say, we figured out all the unit economics, the product works, it's self-serve, it, it works really well. And now let's go raise a bunch of VC to just pour on the growth marketing, on the performance marketing. Whereas you could have just raised debt financing for that and it would have been a much cheaper, more direct way to go. I think that's where there's a, like a, an absolute slam dunk case to be made here where every founder who's cracked that code, and it's not many, but they, there's a lot of these founders who are raising tons and tons of VC to pour fuel on this fire for these unit economics they've ostensibly figured out, and they could be just raising debt for that. And that, I think, is a really compelling case. 
At, at the end of the day, though, the traditional Silicon Valley startup high growth game is about rapidly and massively increasing the value of your equity. Ultimately, the only way to crystallize that value is to have someone buy some of that equity and to get a new valuation. And so extend that value with some debt financing and borrow your way through your unit economics. But at some point, someone has to buy some of your company in order to price it at a new valuation. Certainly, you can go get some third-party order to take a stab at that. But really, you want to demonstrate that equity growth, right? I guess the thing that I'm most afraid of when I hear this story is that I meet so many founders who are so fixated on revenue and have this kind of really low margin, low repeatability, low scalability revenue, and or they're building these kind of fairly rudimentary services businesses that are on track to get disrupted by a much more compelling, much more tech forward, repeatable, scalable Silicon Valley style startup. And I just, I feel a little bit sad about that. <laughs> I just feel like you are building a little business here and it's cool, but for that same amount, that same unit of life and with a slightly different perspective on the world and with slightly more capital and market in your immediate backyard, you too could be the next successful startup founder on the front page of whatever. But instead, you're probably on track for a meddling outcome or worse disruption from the Silicon Valley players coming to eat your lunch. That's why I'm saying if you're able to build a really great business where unit economics are figured out, powered by product, then I think this makes a ton of sense. And I think almost what you're saying, Matt, is we need to see a really compelling product with a great set of unit economics. I'm just worried that people hearing this, listening to this saying, oh, well, if we can get to revenue as fast as possible, we can just raise debt. And that's not what you're saying, I think. And that's not what I want people to walk away from this conversation hearing. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about our, our due diligence and investment committee process, which looks very different to a VC one. The metric that we use internally, which has got a bunch of stuff behind it, is the quality of the revenue. I guess the difference is that we can start pretty early. So if a founder has got to the point where they do have revenue flowing through the business and the quality is high, and, and we believe that the growth will continue, if not accelerate with our capital, then we're happy to take a position on that revenue. The difference is if a founder wants to run a profitable business, if the former is true, then there's three different things they can do. They can run a profitable business. That's fine. Works for my business model. As long as that growth is stays on track or accelerates the position we take. They can go off and raise venture money. At Tractor, we've had out of our portfolio, we've had over 10% go off and raise equity after they've taken out debt afterwards. So it came back to front, debt first, then equity, because the debt unlocked some growth. And they were like, cool, now we do need to actually invest again in front of our curve, not behind it to grow. And the third one is a lot of these founders want to grow their revenue and then just sell the thing. And I guess the difference between us and a VC is that if a founder wants to sell it and they've got their revenue to 2 million bucks and they want to sell it for 20 million bucks, good on them works for us. We're not here to prescribe what the definition of ultimate success is. And our business model can work in all shapes and sizes we've got a bunch of capital and a bunch of VC-backed companies because it still works for us. As long as the company is going to be able to survive to pay off our loan, that's our definition of success. But what comes next is entirely up to the founder, but we're not going to force their hand. So you're right to a degree, Chris. If a company's got 15 grand of recurring revenue, the quality is good, it's growing, and it's likely to continue to grow, we're happy to help. We have companies that do millions and millions a month 
that we could put millions of dollars into. It also works as well. It scales all the way up and down. I'm very curious about your quality of revenue score, how that works and what, what, what are the inputs for that? Magic. No, it's not magic. Uh, it's not magic. It's, it's actually a lot of it's like a lot of it's financial due diligence. Our credit and risk team have done this before. My team is made up of fairly senior people from existing modern lenders who understand it's a combination of taking the current state of the business and how it got here and a future state as described by the founders and us taking a blended position on what our confidence level is of them being able to achieve that future state. Now, quite often we get a deck. And they've just come back from trying to raise money for VCs and the deck has a nice hockey stick that goes up and to the right like crazy. And we're like, yeah, look, that's not likely to happen unless you pull those $10 million worth of VC equity and, and pour it all on the things that may or may not be working yet. We are far more conservative than that, but that's okay. That's just how the magic of our stuff works. We do believe that we're, we've got a, a really good method and we'll continue to do that method and it's working so far. So we have. 30 plus companies in the business. We're 18 months old. We'll double that by the end of the year. There's a bunch of businesses and some of those will turn from tractors into rockets and we're here for them for that as well. Something that occurs to me is that in our industry, being a, a young industry that's trying to disrupt things, one of the downsides is we have a habit of reinventing wheels and discovering things that have been there all along. And I think about how web engineering had to rediscover all the basic principles of software engineering uh, and design that actually were invented in the 1970s or more recently how crypto rediscovered all the rules about corporate governance and market regulation that were discovered over a hundred years ago in the public markets and i feel myself guilty of rediscovering a lot of things about finance that in the case of finance have been known for hundreds and in some cases thousands of years which is there are different ways of getting funded and you need to be sophisticated in thinking about the pros and cons of different types of funding. And in tech, I think it's just being like, oh, equity funding works really well for us and everything's just going to be equity funding. And Matt, you talked about the US market being more mature and therefore having more debt in the mix. And I think that's right. Is the wheels being reinvented or existing wisdom has been relearned to a point where you can understand where debt fits into your high growth rocket ship. And Chris, your fear is valid, but it's only valid because what you actually are afraid of is a lack of sophistication and thinking, not the availability of debt instruments in themselves. Absolutely. It's not the availability of the debt financing itself. It's in the misinterpretation and the skewed behavior of founders who are already just very confused about this whole ecosystem and this whole game and best practices. And my fear is that they are taking away the wrong lessons, but if we can up-level them, I think that that's the key of this show. And I think it's the key of all of us as participants in the ecosystem is to help them understand the nuances here. And I think this is definitely one of the more sophisticated topics we've covered in the podcast. It's only going to get more sophisticated over time. We're working our way from the basics to the intermediate, to the advanced. And so hopefully we can take our audience on a journey. And this has been a really a great peek into to a more sophisticated way of fundraising and operating a business. So Matt, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. How can people reach you and find out more about Tractor? Twitter is where I live, at Matt Allen. Tractor is at tractorventures.com. There's an apply button, takes about 30 seconds if you're interested. And we're, we're keen to talk to founders of all shapes and sizes that are exploring the way they might want to capitalize their company. So in this episode, we spoke about expanding your fundraising horizons beyond just venture capital. 
We spoke about the ways in which it really isn't an either or between equity and debt funding, but that if you get a more sophisticated vision of your business and the ways in which it uses money, you can actually make fundraising decisions that are optimal for both you as a founder and for the business itself. Awesome, Yanev, that was another great episode. So in wrapping up here, how can people find you and how can they work with you one-on-one? On Twitter, I'm at Y Bernstein. I'm also very active on LinkedIn. In terms of working with me, I am working full-time on my own startup, so I'm not available for any long-form consulting. But if you've got something short and sweet where you think I could add a lot of value, I'm happy to talk. How about you, Chris? I'm at Chris Saad on Twitter, Instagram, and all the socials. Working with me is pretty straightforward. I have a page up at chrissard.com slash advisory. I carve out a little bit of time uh, each week to work with founders and startups. So hit me up there and let me know if I can be helpful. Let us know your thoughts about this episode and any suggestions for the next episode. Of course, follow the Startup Podcast and all the socials. And as always, please subscribe and rate us in your favorite podcast app. And maybe most importantly, Share us with your friends and in the communities you hang out with. We always love and appreciate the sharing. It helps spread the word, grow the audience, and ultimately motivates Yanev and I had to make more episodes. Thanks, everybody, and we'll catch you in the next one. Today's episode was brought to you by N14. We love N14 because they put your priorities as a startup first. For example, most agency recruiters charge a percentage of the candidate's salary But that means that if you need to offer a little bit more to close the deal, you end up paying more. How does that make sense? So instead, N14 charges you a flat rate no matter what the salary is. Even better, they offer an installment plan so that your precious cash flow is impacted as little as possible. Check them out at n14.io.